Alright, so we are in Malachi chapter 1, and before we start reading uh, through the book, uh, chapter 1 of Malachi, I just want to give you a little bit of uh, background on the book of Malachi, just a little bit of introduction before we get into this. So, first off, just a few facts about the book of Malachi. It's obviously the last book in the Old Testament, and it was written roughly 400 years before Jesus Christ came to earth, and that Time in between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, that's what they call the 400 silent years, where God didn't really do any speaking through prophets during that time. It was a very dark time. It was a very wicked time. If you study uh, just Israel's history during that time, they didn't do very good. It was a really bad time. And uh, you can, if you want to read some history on it, not Bible, but history on it, that's where like your first and second Maccabees. Uh, that's where uh, you have the story of Antiochus Epiphanes and them, uh, you know, him committing the Old Testament version of the abomination of desolation. A lot of the prophecies of Daniel were fulfilled during that time. It's an interesting read, but doctrinally it's of no significance. But, um, you know, chronologically, the book of Malachi, this is important that you get this. It comes right after Nehemiah. Okay? Now, I've, I've taught you all this before, but I think this is worth repeating because it's important that we understand this. Most people, unfortunately, they do not know the history of you know, that Israel is at during the major and minor prophets, causing them to get lost whenever they're reading about these prophecies. If you don't know what's going on and where they're at in the timeline you're going to miss a lot of things. In fact, um, one of the reasons people are so mixed up about the regathering of Israel and a lot of the prophecies about that is because they don't understand the history of where these prophecies are at. Because the thing, you know, what happens, these, you know, Ruckmanites and dispensationalists, they'll read the book of Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel. They'll read these prophecies about Israel being restored to the land and after you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those, you don't see any example of it being fulfilled. But the thing that they don't realize is that actually much of that was fulfilled. It's in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But they get confused because Ezra and Nehemiah come before those books. Okay? But turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Let me show you this. This chapter is very, it's very significant. And it covers a long period of time. But I want to show you this just to give you an idea too of where Malachi's at in Israel's history. But let's start reading in verse 16. It says, "...but they mocked the messengers of God and despised His words and misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy." Okay? When you're reading the book of Jeremiah... Jeremiah is prophesying about the destruction uh, that's going to come from Babylon. He's prophesying about the 70 years of captivity. It's in Jeremiah where he says, Reprobate silver shall men call them, because the Lord hath rejected them. That generation was reprobate in the sense of there was no place of repentance for them to get out of that captivity. That judgment was going to come. And God told him that 70 years of captivity is going to come. But then it was also prophesied in the book of Jeremiah that I'm going to restore you to the land. 
And then they were restored to the land. Say, but yeah, but if you read in the book of Jeremiah and a lot of those prophets, that looks a lot like the millennium. And it was, and the thing is, a lot of that is about the millennium. You say, well, then those things weren't fulfilled. Well, the thing is, God did fulfill His promise about restoring them to the land, but because they didn't do their part, there's, you know, it wasn't completely fulfilled, I guess you could say. And there's going to kind of be a repeat later. But a lot of stuff that's prophesied that people often put towards the future, it's already been fulfilled. I'm not saying all of it's been fulfilled, but a lot of it has. But you all know, they what did they do to Jeremiah after he prophesied? He got thrown into a dungeon, didn't he? They misused the prophets. So it says, "...in all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasure of the house of the Lord, and the treasure of the king, and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God." break down the wall of Jerusalem and burn all the palaces thereof with fire and destroy all the goodly vessels thereof, all the things that they prophesied were going to happen. And then that escaped from the sword, carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons till the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Y'all see this? So this is Second Chronicles, but this part here, it's written after Jeremiah, isn't it? Because it's referring back to the prophecies of Jeremiah. In our Bible, Jeremiah comes later, but Second Chronicles chapter 36 is taking place after Jeremiah. And look what it says, that he's bringing them back to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths for as long as she lay desolate. She kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the, Lord's, uh, word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kings of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all this people? The Lord is God be with him. Let him go up. So right there, Second Chronicles ends with Cyrus telling them to go back and rebuild the temple, build the walls back up. Then you have Ezra and Nehemiah where it tells how they did it. It goes into detail about how they went and they built the walls. They had opposition along the way, but the truth is, Israel was kind of lazy about it. It took them a lot longer than they should have. They were sitting around like a bunch of old IFB Baptists just waiting for a revival, not realizing revival had already come. God had delivered them from their captivity. God had put it in the king's heart to allow them to go and rebuild the temple, but they were sitting around on their cans just waiting for this move of God to start. And so God had to send men like Ezra and Nehemiah to step up and say, hey, it's time for you guys to get busy. God did His part. Now it's time for you to get to work. Go build that temple. Go clean up everything. Go build those walls. And that's what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is about. Well, after Ezra and Nehemiah, chronologically, we have the book of Malachi. This is roughly 30 to 40 years after the stories that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. And just understand, when you see the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
it's really kind of a pathetic story in the sense that God does this great thing and Israel just does a sorry job doing their part. They go and they rebuild the temple, but it was inferior to the old one. You know, the young crowd, they got excited when they saw it, but the older men, they wept when they saw it because they realized, man, this isn't anything like the one that was here before. They remember the old temple. And they they wept when they saw it. And it was just a very poor performance, you could say. They had some moments where they were excited about what they had done, but the truth is they hadn't accomplished much. So God gives them about another 30 or 40 years. And then, here we are in the book of Malachi, and God is pretty much speaking to them by the mouth of a prophet for the last time until John the Baptist, you could say it was the final Old Testament prophet. And right here in the book of Malachi, pretty much what we're seeing, now that you've got it in your head where we're at, this is after the Babylonian captivity, this is after the prophecies of Jeremiah have been fulfilled, and God has restored them to the land, and God has, uh, they've rebuilt their temple, they've got while they're technically in captivity, you know, while you know the Medes and Persians are technically still in control, they're giving them the freedom to do what they want. So there's nothing stopping them from following the word of the Lord. So how have they been doing? What's been going on in Israel after God has done this great miracle, after God has fulfilled, I mean, chapters and chapters of prophecy? How has Israel done? And what I kind of like to think of Malachi as, it's Israel's report card. And we're going to see, just as a little spoiler, they got an F-. Okay? They did bad. After all God had done for them, after God has punished them greatly and brought them back, they still failed epically. Is that a word? Epically? It is now. I just made I just made it a word. But understand that this was the final straw. And the next thing God was going to do, I mean, God left them alone pretty much for 400 years. Okay, and Hanukkah, I don't believe that was a move of God during that time. That's just a story the Jews made up so they can have something instead of Christmas. But God pretty much didn't didn't really do much with them during that time. But what he did end up doing is finally sending Jesus. He sent in Jesus Christ. The old covenant was never going to work. It was never going to work. He gave them plenty of chances. They should have been all ready to receive Jesus Christ by the time He came after just their horrible history. But you all know the story there. But let's go ahead and start going through Malachi chapter 1. And let's see... Uh, you know, they're great. And as God goes through and is rebuking different things that they have failed on. So it says in verse 1, "...the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness." Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them 
the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. So right here, a few things I want to show you here is, oh, I forgot to read verse 5, and your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. So what's going on right here? Well, God brings up the fact that He has loved them, but Israel had this attitude, you haven't loved us. It's the same attitude they had in the book of Psalms. I've listened to the old IP. I forgot which Psalm it is. I preached on it a long time ago. They love quoting that verse, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? They say that all the time. They always put it up on banners and they're going to have a revival meeting. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? If you go and you study that Psalm, that Psalm was written after God brought them out of captivity. That Psalm was written after God had put it in the king's heart to allow them to go build the temple. God has given them everything they need. God had revived them. But Israel thought, we just want God to just show up and do something Himself. We want to do nothing. And it's exactly how the old IFB is when they're sitting around saying, wilt thou not revive us again that people may rejoice in thee? It's like, I just want to slap them in the face and say, have you never read Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2? Have you ever read about the day of Pentecost? Did you ever read about when the Holy Spirit showed up? Have you ever gotten saved? If you got saved, you know you were quickened. You were brought to life spiritually. You know what your problem is? Your problem isn't that you don't need. You know, your problem is not that you need revived. Your problem is you need to actually go do something. Is what you need to do. But they always seem to miss that. And then they sit around praying all the time. I can't figure out why the Lord's not moving. We had an all-night prayer meeting. Well, maybe you should have had a soul winning marathon instead. And then maybe something actually would have happened. And they're just like Israel. They're sitting around saying, Lord, wherein have you loved us? And notice how he said, he mentions this here. And this is the famous verse, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, what does that mean? Well, first off, this is not referring to Esau the person, because I believe God loved Esau the person. This is referring to Esau the nation. Just like, and it's referring to Jacob, the nation. Because notice how it says he laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. God never did that to Esau. Esau was blessed while he was on earth. Now, Esau was not as blessed as Jacob. God blessed Jacob more. Now, years later, uh, the Edomites, which were of Esau, they ended up attacking Israel at a time where they were down, and that made God angry, and they were cursed after that. And this refers to him here as the people upon whom the Lord hath indignation forever. That doesn't sound good. okay? But that is, uh, that's what God called them. They were a cursed people. And notice how he mentions. okay? Cause when he, so when he's saying, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, I don't even believe God's saying here that I hate Edomites in the sense like I, I just hate, like I hate Sodomites or something. Okay? What's he saying here? Because now... One of the definitions of the word hate is to love less. Okay. Now, let me show you a few examples. You say, well, I, I, I think he hated them. Okay, well, maybe he did. Maybe he did, but sometimes it just means to love less. And I'll prove to you that hate sometimes means that. Genesis chapter 29, verse 30. <clears throat> says, And he went in unto Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Okay. Now, if Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, does that mean he did love Leah some? 
<clears throat> right? So he, Jacob loved Leah, didn't he? Okay, but he loved Rachel more. Now let's keep reading. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb and Rachel was barren. Wait, I thought it just said he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. So he obviously loved Leah, but he preferred Rachel over Leah. He loved Leah less than he loved Rachel. Therefore, that is another word. Another word you could use is hate. Deuteronomy 21.15 says, If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be when he maketh the sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. So, so you know, why would a man love one and hate one? Well, the truth is, I think he probably loves both of them too. But he prefers one over the other. And God's saying the firstborn is the firstborn. doesn't matter which wife you like better. It goes to the firstborn no matter what. Matthew 6.24 says, No man can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I think it's crystal clear here that it, you know, you're going to prefer one over the other. You're going to love one more than the other or you're going to love one less than the other. Because the truth is, you can serve God and you can serve mammon too in the sense you can do a little bit for both. But are you not going to prefer one over the other? One's going to take priority over the other, isn't it? And the one that you love is the one that you are going to folk, you know, is going to be the priority. And the one that you love less is the one that you hate. Y'all get that? And I think this is the best proof that hate just means to love less sometimes. Is Luke 14.26 says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now this clearly is telling us here that we're supposed to put Christ first. God doesn't want us hating our parents like we hate sodomites. He doesn't want us hating our own life in the sense of I want to go kill myself. But He does want us to love Him more than we love all those other things. And if we prefer Him over everyone else, then in this we do hate our father and mother and we hate our family and we hate our life in the definition of to love less. Y'all get that? And when it comes to the Edomites, I mean, I guess you can say God hated them. I mean, He has indignation on them forever. But even with Jacob and Esau, yes, God did hate Esau the person in the sense that He loved him less than Jacob. He preferred Jacob over Esau. And then when you read verses 1-5 through here in Malachi, you'll notice how he goes through explaining how God blessed Jacob more than He blessed Esau. God gave Jacob a better land than He gave the Edomites, didn't He? And then and notice how God was working against the Edomites. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says, Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. The Edomites, while they were poor, while they had crummy land, they were at least willing to you know, get their carcass in gear and go do something. 
Now, God was just going to destroy whatever they built, but at least these people were actually working and doing something. Jacob, they had the blessing of God. They had the better land. They were preferred by God, but they sat around doing nothing. That says something about Jacob and their character. Here we have the Edomites, people that God is working against. You have Jacob, the people that God is working for. And Edomites, they're at least working and trying. Jacob, sitting around like a bunch of lazy Baptists, pretty much. That, that's what we see going on right there. And so he said, Your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. God wanted to do His work there in their land. Why? Because they were blessed. God had been good to them. God gave them a good land. But what did they say? They sat around saying, wherein has God loved us? Kind of like a kid sometimes. Mom and Dad, don't you love me? Hey, you think this house is free? You think I'm working those jobs you know, because they're fun? Think those are hobbies? You know, what do you call it when you're stuffing your face every day? Giving you a place to eat and to sleep. You know, we've been taking care of you. I mean, you know, the first years of their life. I mean, you literally have to do everything for them just to keep them alive. You know? And yet, kids will still sit around sometime. My mom and dad don't love me. That's a pathetic attitude. That's a pathetic attitude. And that was Israel's attitude. They should have been ashamed of themselves. They failed to recognize all God had done for them. God showed His love by comparing how He had treated them compared to how He had treated Esau. So, um, look at verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1. It says, The son honoreth his father, and his servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you. O priest that despise my name, and ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Okay? So, you know, hopefully your children have enough respect for you to not just, you know, come up and calling you by your first name and calling you names, you know, that when they see in the morning, it's like, Hi, idiot. You know, hopefully they don't despise your name like that. Hopefully they, uh, they show some respect. You try to teach them that, right? Well, God right here, He's saying, you know, you'll honor your masters. You'll honor your fathers, but you're not honoring me. You despise my name. But just like kids, when they're fighting, when they're being bad, when their room is trash, I mean, there's just the effort of being bad is everywhere, and then you yell at them, What did I do? You, know, you ever experienced that with your kids before? You know, I didn't do anything. That's kind of how Israel was. Wherein have we despised thy name? Tell us what we did wrong. And he said, Ye offered polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. Okay? Now, 
get this here, okay? Because this is something I've just I've been studying a lot as I've been seeing people just attacking the Old Testament law of God and just studying more and more about the Old Testament, how important it is and replacement theology. I, I, I'm noticing these things a little more. But notice how God calls them out here. He's calling the priests up because they basically were taking the sacrifices lightly. Basically, what's going on here, they're offering polluted bread. All now, the details of the Word of God no longer mattered anymore. All of a sudden now, they're treating the Levitical law the way the old IFB treat the Levitical law. Eh, some of it's good, some of it's no good. Uh, I, I like that part. I don't really like that part. And they're just kind of half-heartedly, they're going and performing these holy sacrifices and they're doing it in a sloppy way. Now, we need to put ourselves back in the mindset back then. Because today, because of the liberty we have in Christ, we often take this for granted. Okay? The, the things that we do today are very simple, aren't they? For example, when we get saved, call on the Lord for salvation, don't we? It's pretty simple. You believe the Gospel, call on for salvation, you're saved. Well, then what do we do after that? What are our ceremonies we do after that? Well, we get baptized. That's pretty simple, isn't it? In fact, you don't even have to be baptized to go to heaven. But if you do get baptized, it's as simple as just getting put under water and pulled back up. Being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Lord's Supper is very simple. Unlike the Passover that was very detailed, that was very meticulous, that had to be done a specific way on a certain day of the year, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we can really do it when we want. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till He come. It's very simple. It's very easy. There's nothing complicated about it. Now, I don't believe we ought to be irreverent about it. I don't believe we ought to be sloppy about it. But, are any of us, you know, it's not a super detailed thing. Okay? But understand, these sacrifices that God gave them in the Old Testament, they were very detailed. They were very meticulous. Why? Because they represented Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. Therefore, these were holy. These sacrifices were holy. These practices were holy. They were to be done a specific way. And remember when God originally gave them those laws for the burnt offerings? We see that Nadab and Abihu... They didn't do it the way they were supposed to. They got sloppy. And what happened? Fire came out of the altar and consumed them. And God said, I'm going to be sanctified in Israel. I'm going to be glorified in these people. And He told them, you've got to do these things right. But because people weren't, you know, God wasn't torching everybody that did the offerings wrong, they got sloppy. Same thing today. Just because God's not torching fornicators today, you got a lot of Christians fornicating even though the Bible warned us about what God used to do to the fornicators and told us, hey, God just may do this again. And He is going to do some of these things again someday. But yet, I haven't seen anybody get torched. So I guess it must not be a big deal. No, it is still a big deal. And the priests, they got sloppy on this. And the thing is, because the priests had failed God, the people had failed God. You say, well, how, how's that fair? I don't have time to go to all the Scriptures, 
But remember in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 24, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, remember all the wicked abominations they were doing? They weren't doing the offerings right. They were, for, they were committing adultery with the women that would come to the tabernacle. I mean, just wicked stuff. And when Eli's getting on to his sons about it, he says, Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. Now, how are they transgressing? They weren't bringing their offerings because they were disgusted by what these guys were doing. So now, because the priests weren't doing their job, the people weren't doing what they were supposed to do, and God's people were in transgression. And turn over to Leviticus um, chapter 4. Let me show you this. Leviticus chapter 4. This is important that you understand this. This is another thing people need to realize about the priesthood. This is, you, you've got to get this. Leviticus 4.13 says, And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord, and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord, and the priest that is anointed shall bring the bullock's blood to the tabernacle of the congregation, and the priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood and sprinkle it before the Lord, even before the veil. And he shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, that is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar, the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take all his fat from him and burn it upon the altar. And he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for a sin offering. So shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. And he shall carry forth the bullock without the camp and burn him as he burned the first bullock. It is a sin offering for the congregation. Now, I want to notice a couple things. One, this is pretty detailed, isn't it? This was a very detailed offering. This is just one example here. There's many other examples we could see uh, in, throughout the book of Leviticus. But notice, there was a very specific way this was supposed to be done and this was to be done to forgive the sins of the congregation. You know what that means? It means if this doesn't get done right, the congregation doesn't get forgiven. Now, how would you like to be a part of a congregation that was dependent on a Levitical priest? Not me. I wouldn't like that at all. But thank God, He replaced the Levitical priest he replaced the high priest and he replaced it with Jesus Christ. Now, how do you all feel about having Jesus Christ as your high priest? I feel pretty good about that. And we don't have time to go to Hebrews chapter 9, but Hebrews chapter 9 is a reminder of that, of how that high priest, every year, he would have to go behind that veil and he would have to do that offering for the people. But thank God we have Jesus Christ, a better high priest, who did it. He only had to do it one time. And it's been done once and for all. And now we still need Him as a high priest 
to ever make intercession for us because of the fact that we sin every day. But thank God we're dependent on Jesus Christ and not a Hophni and Phineas or even an Aaron. Thank God for that. We have something so much better. Because let me tell you something about the priests of Israel. They failed. Big time. And they were failing during this time too. So we have a good thing. Thank God for replacement theology. Thank God for the new covenant. Thank God for the better high priest, Jesus Christ. So, if the priest messed up, the congregation messed up. The priest's performance here though, it was a clear illustration about how they felt about the sacrifices of God. They're offering up the blind. Now think about this. I can preach a whole sermon on this right here. But now think about this. Okay, because understand what we had in the Old Testament. We're not in the Old Testament anymore. We have something better. All right, we have the New Testament. But is this an excuse to make light of sin? Does God has God changed His opinion about sin? Has God's standard of holiness been lowered with the New Covenant? No, it's exactly the same as it was before. Okay, so now think about this. When we go back and we read how detailed those sacrifices were. And when it causes us to understand there is no way anyone could ever get saved by that. Jesus Christ is clearly the only way. Jesus Christ is clearly the only hope of salvation. The blood of Christ is the only atonement for sin there could possibly be. So now think about this. When you have priests offering up blind, God was angry about that, wasn't He? It showed how they felt about this holy sacrifice of God. They didn't think it was a holy thing. They didn't think it was a big deal. It showed how they felt about the perfect words of God. When they're skipping details. Okay? Now I want to compare what they did to the work salvation crowd. Anyone who says that they think you have to work your way to heaven, my question to them is, have you ever read the law? Have you ever read what is required? These people that are in these this holiness these holiness churches. Have you not read the law? Have you not even read the New Testament? Have you not even studied the life of Jesus Christ? What makes you think you can measure up to that? Let me tell you something about these holiness people. You know, they walk around, they dress more conservative than we do. I mean, the holiness crowd, they you know, they might outdo us in some areas when it comes to works. But let me tell you something. In the eyes of God, they're offering up a blind bullock for a sacrifice. They're offering a black, dirty lamb instead of a clean, spotless white one. That's how God sees that holiness crowd's work. You think of the most strict religion you know. You think of the most conservative people you know. And any all these people... Their righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. It does not measure up at all. And their performance as Christians, I'm telling you, it looks like these priests' offerings to God. And it makes God angry. God wants something perfect. God wants a perfect sacrifice. He wants the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if they're not going to claim that, they're not getting in. They're not getting forgiveness. They're not going to go to heaven, period. They're going to go to hell and they deserve it. I don't care how good they look. I don't care that they look better than us. I don't care that they might talk nicer, be nicer, you know, 
They give 20% 10, instead of 10%. I don't know. What all these wonderful things they do, they still don't measure up. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing. And not only that, not only do work, I want to say to the work salvation people, have you ever read the law? The repent of your sins preachers. I want to ask them, have you ever read the law? I heard James White just this week talking about this no repentance gospel that we preach, which I don't preach a no repentance gospel, but I tell you what, I don't preach a repent of your sins gospel. I'll tell you why. Because I've read the law. See, now here's here's what these clowns... Alright, so let's even take an old IFB camp meeting preacher. When a camp meeting preacher gets up and tells you you've got to repent of your sins in order to be saved, what does that mean? Okay, It means you've got to repent of your drunkenness. You've got to repent of your lack of tithing. You've got to repent of your, you know, your smoking, your dope. Whatever it is that they've given up. My question to them is, what about all the rest of the sins in the Bible? Well, now you just got to give up the grievous ones. Oh, so God's not grieved by my little sins? Jesus didn't have to die for my little sins? I mean, so just the big ones. As long as we give up the fornication, you know, the big things. Do you realize every repent of your sins preacher, they have some kind of standard. And they'll do. They'll get up. I don't know about these people that didn't have a changed life like I did. Let me tell you something, folks. Me stand before you today, I'm a trophy of grace. I'm a trophy of what God can do when a person really gets saved. Really? Have you read the law? Because I'm still looking at a sinner. Have you not read what the Bible says about pride? Have you not read what the Bible says just about ignorance and foolishness and stupidity? And we're going to watch some fat guy get up there and dance around you know, because of the change that he made in his life and talk about how he repented of his sins and you all ain't saved if you haven't repented as much as he has. And I'm telling you, his repentance that he's talking about, you know what it looks like? It looks like the offerings that these priests were bringing. Offering the blind. Oh, really? You're going to offer up a fat dude that has terrible dance moves that just brags on himself. That's your offering to God? That's not going to work. Only Jesus Christ is going to work, buddy. These people, they don't even know what they're talking about. And the problem is, the reason we got this kind of trash preaching going on today is because nobody's preaching the law. Nobody's preaching the Old Testament. Everybody's looking at the Old Testament and saying, oh, you know, it's done. That's no good. That was a different dispensation. No. It's all still good. And that, the Old Testament law is why we need Jesus Christ. And if a person would actually study the law and understand that it is still good, that it is still holy, you know what they're going to do? They're going to say, you know, they're going to repent. And they're going to say, I have no hope. Without Jesus Christ, I can't repent of my sins. I can't be good enough. I can't work my way to heaven. My only hope is Jesus Christ. But yet, that's not being taught. So you know what we have today all over the well, all over the South mostly. You got fat guys dancing in church. And you I've got video proof. I've got video proof I've fat guys dancing talking about their changed life. Say, why bring up the fact that they're fat? Because it just makes their dancing more revolting. 
Alright? It's like, it just, you know, and I'm th- they haven't studied the law, folks. They, they don't know what it says. They don't care. They've prioritized it. James White, he, you know, James White is talking about, you know, Anderson's no repentance gospel. Okay, so James White repented of his sins, and how come James White didn't repent of getting tattoos? How come James White hasn't repented of being effeminate? How come James White hasn't repented of changing the Word of God? How come James, there, I can give you a whole bunch of sins that James White hasn't repented of, but James White has decided those things don't matter anymore. Oh, you know, the markings on the flesh, you know, uh, you know that was a different dispensation. That was for, that was for Israel. No, that's the law of God. And you know, you've got tattoos, buddy, recently. You know, are you, what are you going to do about that? Okay, you can't repent of those tattoos in the sense you're stuck with them now. But you know what you can do? You can ask for God's mercy and finally get saved and trust in Him because His works stink. And He's offering up the blind with His works just like the priest of Malachi. And you know, I mean, I can pick on any of us with this. Do you realize while I'm talking about how they all had an F- on their report card, we've all got an F- on our report card? It wouldn't be any different if we were the priest. It would be, it would be a joke. And these people, they, just, they didn't care. So look what it says in verse 11. It says, "...from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, My name shall be great among the Gentiles." And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Part of Israel's job was to make God look good. One of the main ways they were supposed to make God look good, they were supposed to proclaim His holiness. How were they supposed to do that? They did that through the sacrifices and offerings. But they weren't doing it right. Verse 12 says, But ye have profaned it, and that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof even as meat is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it! And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought up that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. All things that they were not supposed to offer. All things that were specifically mentioned. They were not supposed to offer an animal that had been torn or killed by a beast. They were supposed to take a perfectly good, healthy animal and kill it. Otherwise, there's no sacrifice. Hey, a wolf got to this lamb. Let's offer that one. It's kind of like these people that always want to donate their trash to the church. That's a side note. It's not quite the same, but I thought thought about that. And they think they're real generous too. They'll unload a whole truckload of junk at the church and act like they're doing you a big favor. It's like, what am I supposed to do with all this trash? They used to do that at my dad's church all the time. We had a whole big storage room just full of trash that people generously donated to the church. And it ended up costing us money because we'd have to rent dumpsters and throw it all out eventually. But I don't know why I got sidetracked on that. That verse just reminded me of that. So he brought that was torn, the lame, the sick, thus he brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and boweth and sacrifices unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. The effort that they were putting into these sacrifices 
it had a reflection on how they felt about God and they were making God look bad. Kind of like, how many saw that video? I did a video about a while back when Israel had that altar dedication recently. They were dedicating that altar that's for the new temple and they went and they did a lamb sacrifice. It was an abomination, folks. It wasn't the abomination of desolation. But it wasn't about... It, it was so pathetic. They loaded everything up in green totes. First off, they didn't even kill the lamb right there because that would have looked bad on TV. If they would have taken and slit the throat of an innocent lamb in front of the TV cameras, Peter would have thrown a fit. But that was a sacrifice that God called for back then. You say, that innocent lamb, what did it do? Well... You know, if people would have seen him do an innocent lamb, maybe it would have reminded them, what did Jesus do? It would, it, would, it would have reminded them what it was all about. I know they shouldn't do a lamb sacrifice, but if they're going to do a lamb sacrifice, at least do it right, and maybe somebody will get the message of Jesus Christ. But no, they pretty much just had like the back part of the lamb, and then they just they go lugging the toe up the altar and just kind of fling it in there and didn't even get it in right. I mean, it was a fiasco. All the artifacts up there, the menorah, the altar incense, all these other things that were up there, they weren't even the real ones that they have. I've seen the real ones that they have. I've got pictures of the menorah. They went and they got a cheap, knockoff, fake version because they were too lazy to haul the real ones out there to do their thing. And they did. They just did a mock sacrifice. It, it was a total fiasco. You know what that showed me? It showed me how those Jews today feel about the law of God. And it, you know what it tells me? They don't take it very serious. You know what they were doing? They were doing a cheap publicity stunt to get attention for Israel and to get people excited. It was a joke. And you know what? When we, when we, do, when we come up with our supposed repent of your sins lifestyle to prove we're saved, it's a joke. We look like a bunch of Jews that haven't got a clue what they're doing trying to offer a lamb sacrifice. They don't even care. Not even taking it serious. Loading it up in their green totes they bought at Walmart. Just being sloppy with it. And Jesus Christ, He did end up succeeding in glorifying God through His sacrifice. Because His sacrifice was perfect. He was a spotless lamb. He was the perfect, sinless Son of God. Jesus Christ succeeded in glorifying God through His death, burial, and resurrection. And that's the sacrifice that I'm, I'm trusting in. But we should never, ever put ourselves out there as an example of God's holiness. We shouldn't do that. If you really get saved, folks, you're going, you'll look like me. Boy, what do you think of the law of God? How low do you think of it? How low do you think of Jesus Christ? I'm telling you about you know these people think they can get saved just by believing. They don't believe in the power of God. Real salvation has power. I proof I got power in my life. Really? So you, fat dude with no dance moves, you're a picture of the power of God. What does that tell the world about the power of God? 
Think about these these people in these camp meetings running around, you know, during the songs about the changed life. What is that telling the world about the power of God? That's telling the power of God's not real impressive because these people aren't real impressive. These same people that talk about how we preach a powerless gospel because we're not talking about our changed life are the same people that often go out and molest kids, commit adultery, flop out of the ministry, get caught up in financial scandals. They do one thing after another. And these are the same people talking about how the power of God's in my life. And I'm sorry, if they are a picture of the power of God, the message that I'm getting is the power of God is weak. But they, they think this because once again, they're not reading the law. They're not reading the Old Testament. They should never use themselves as an example. We should always testify to the fact that we are dependent on the mercies of God. Go ahead. I mean, do your best to live a good life. Do your best to try to be like Christ. But at the end of the day, if somebody ever comes to you and says, wow, you're, you're so different. There's something different about you. That's what they say You know, people are going to do all the time. And sometimes people ask what's different. But you know, don't look at those people if they ask what's different about you. Say, well, let me tell you about me. I used to be just like you. A low down, sorry, so and so, good for nothing on my way to hell. But one day the power of God came. I repented of my sins. And now I'm what you see here today. That, my friends, is no. You know what we should be testifying to people? I'm dependent on the mercies of God. If they do notice something different about you, okay, that's not your opportunity to talk about how strict you are and how great you are. You should keep me reminding people I'm still dependent on the mercies of God. Even if they're like, wow, you go to church three times a week? Wow, you, do that? you don't do that? I say, wow, nothing. I'm still dependent on the mercies of God. I'm doing these things because I want to. I don't have to. I don't have to do any of this stuff. I'm, I'm completely dependent on the mercies of God. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about Jesus. That should be our attitude. We should always testify that we are looking forward to the blessed hope and the redemption of our bodies. This isn't the finished product. This here isn't a picture of the power of God. You know what is? It will be my changed body. My glorified body that's going to come at Christ's return. He's going to change this vile body into one like His glorious body. He's going to make this corruptible and incorruptible. That right there is an example of the power of God. Whenever somebody points at themselves and acts like they are a picture of the power of God, it's like, when did you get your glorified body? Really? So that's what God did? You stink. You're still unholy. God's going to have to still change you to even allow you into heaven. Because you're vile. And you're a wretched sinner, just like the Apostle said. Oh, wretched man, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He wasn't going around and running laps around the tent, doing dance moves, bragging about his changed life. He knew better than that. But... All this stuff here, the reason all this has fallen by the wayside is because we have failed to preach on sin. 
Now, we're preaching on the sins that are popular to preach against. We're, you know, old IFB is still preaching against drunkenness and fornication for the most part, adultery for the most part. You know, I mean, they're, they're still preaching against some of these things or they'll preach against sin in general. But I'm talking about, no, no, no. We're supposed to know what sin is and why. we got to actually go to the law. We have to study the law. We need to find out all the things that we're guilty of. We need to find out all the things that we've done that has the death penalty on it. And realize that according to the law, there may be somebody here say, you know, I've got five death sentences on my life according to the law. And you know what that will do for you as a Christian? Now, if you're, if you're a millennial, you'll get offended. can't believe the Bible thinks I deserve five death sentences. But you know what? If you're the right kind of person, it will make you very thankful for the mercies of God. And maybe if people in churches started finding out, hey, you got one death sentence, you got three death sentences. And even if you don't have any physical death sentences, you all got a soul death sentence on you. Maybe if people started hearing that, figuring out why, maybe some people would say, you know, this repent of your sins doctrine is stupid. We can't repent of our sins. This work salvation thing, this is stupid. We can't work our way to heaven. Our only hope is through Jesus Christ. And the book of Malachi, it's Israel's report card after a miraculous restoration of their land. They got an F-. This failure caused 400 years of prophetic silence and ultimately, their failure was the final proof that their only hope for Israel was a Savior. And thankfully, He came. And listen, even today, your performance when it comes to repenting of your sins, which you should after you get saved, is an F. It's an F minus. We're still dependent on the mercies of God. We, when it comes to our striving to be like Christ, we're getting an F minus. But thankfully, while we're trying to do all these things, we have a priest that's in the background doing some work for us and making intercession for us. His name is Jesus Christ. So, even though sin abounds, grace does much more abound. We're still okay because of Jesus Christ. And that is it. And this, all this here in Malachi, it's just a reminder of just the trash that work salvation teaching is Repent of your sins, preaching. It's trash. It is garbage out of the pit of hell. People need to get slapped upside the head with the law that preach that kind of garbage. This is serious stuff. And if we take it serious, it leaves us no place except on our knees, dependent on Jesus Christ, calling on Him for salvation, which is what the law was meant to do. It wasn't meant to make us perfect. It was meant to make us realize we are sinners and we need a Savior. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank You so much for Your goodness to us. Thank You, Lord, for being our High Priest. And thank You for living the perfect life for us. Thank You for making intercession for us. Lord, we, uh, you, you do it all for us. Help us to never forget about our dependence on You. Help us to uh, do our best to proclaim uh, you know, Your sacrifice and uh, Your work to others and so they will see their need for a Savior. In Your name we pray. Amen. Let's go.